You're listening to the Successful Executive Podcast with John Bellino. So I want to thank all of you for listening in this afternoon to the Successful Executive Podcast interview. Today we're speaking with Andrew Thompson, who is a senior actuary at Travelers. Uh, good afternoon, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's sunny and we're all warm down here in Florida, the way I like it. Oh. I, I wish I could so, say the same here in Connecticut. It's uh, Spring is just uh, starting to spring, so I'm happy about that, but not quite Florida weather. Yeah, it's, that, that's still a great time up there. I remember when I lived up there myself, and so it's a great time. So, barring the rain, of course, barring the rain. So, Andrew, I haven't known you as long as some of your colleagues, but um, how did you actually get started in your industry or in your career field? Did you pursue actuarial science in college? Like, was it something that you knew right away out of high school, this is what I want to do, or... Like, what happened? Not really. Uh, you know, it was really a process of elimination. Uh, you know, not a lot of young boys grow up saying that they want to become an actuary. Um, you know, in, in high school, I was good at math and science, and so my guidance counselors and teachers all recommended going into engineering. And uh, by the time I got through one semester at uh, the University of Connecticut, I realized I didn't actually like any of my engineering classes. Uh, so oh. I, I took a semester to just um, just take classes that I thought I'd enjoy. I ended up taking a bunch oh. of film classes and economics and eventually realized that I didn't want to go a semester without taking math. Um, I, I knew I didn't want to teach math, and I wasn't really sure what the options were in that field. Uh, but I ended up taking an internship as an actuary uh, with travelers, and I figured out, I figured worst case scenario, I won't like it, and I'll just go back to the drawing board and try something else, but turned out that I loved it and um, ended up staying on after graduation, and really, I was just really lucky to have stumbled into this field, because, no, it's not something that I, I knew I wanted to, to get into growing up, quite the contrary. That's cool. That's really neat. So, you said something about you never wanted to miss any math classes while you were still trying out other courses. Why is that? I'm not even sure. And that's sort of why I say process of elimination. It was one of those things, you know, I thought, all right, I'll go to school and I'll either become an engineer or go into medicine or something like that. And it wasn't until I actually started taking classes and thinking about what I might do uh, with those classes as a career when I realized that, that I actually liked math and that actually I was pretty good at it. Um, and, and, you know, growing up, it's not always clear what you can use math for in a degree uh, or, or as a career once you have a degree. But um, it turned out to be, you know, something that, that really resonated with me and I enjoyed doing it and I figured, all right, maybe I can make a career of it. That's interesting. That's interesting. So you took an internship. What was your role when you started in the internship? Did they have you like go through a, a number of different, um, how should I put it, departments within the actuarial program? Or sort of, yeah. You know, the, yeah? the internship was one one specific job, uh, and it was working in in just one 
department within my company, but throughout the internship, they did aim to expose us to all the different things you could do if you were to come back and work full time. And, uh, you know, when I took the internship, I thought I'd be, you know, getting coffee for my boss or going to buy muffins for the team or, or you know, that they wouldn't actually give me any real responsibility. But uh, it turned out they actually they actually put you to the job pretty quickly. And I had a real project to work on. And um, I think it's actually something that they still use at the company today. So, you know, it actually made me feel like I was contributing and learning something. Um, and so that worked. That worked really well. And then when I came back full time, that's where I entered into this sort of a rotation program where every year they move you to a new part of the company and you get to learn a new thing. It develops, it gives you a chance to develop pretty quickly. Um, you sort of learn how to do the job. It takes maybe a year to learn the job and then they move you to a new place. So, um, so that was, that was fun to, to see a bunch of different things in a pretty short period of time. And did you have to get your boss coffee from time to time or no? That was ruled out quickly. I, no, that that was ruled out, apparently. Um, yeah, it's a, a really good culture to work in where you're not treated as, uh, you know, less than just because you're you're kind of the new guy in town. So I was uh, pleasantly surprised with that. So you're, like, included in the, in the team concept right, right from the get-go. Exactly. That's awesome. What was that one project that you were working on that they still use today? It was a tool for underwriters to classify business. It was specifically California workers' compensation compensation insurance. Um, it kind of was a, a tool to automate what underwriters had been doing manually for, for years before that. Um, it wasn't all that, uh, you know, super high-tech, but it was high-tech for me coming coming out of college where uh, I had never done anything like this before. And uh, it turned out it actually made people's lives a little bit easier on the job. So uh, I was happy to uh, that I could actually help out in that way. Awesome. That's awesome. So how many, role, how many roles um, did you actually have since you started with Travelers then, would you say? Oh, let's, let's see. It's been about seven or eight roles. Wow. And, um, you know, the first the first couple go pretty quick. Like I said, you're there for a year or less. And as I've moved on in my career, uh, you know, the expectation is you'll stay a little bit longer in each role. So I've been in my current role for four years now, and it, it actually doesn't feel like it's been that long. It's um, the, the years have kind of flown by and I'm not uh, it's not feeling like it's gotten old, even though it's been four years now in this this one job. Okay. Is there anything unique about any of the roles that stand out for you? Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to take a bunch of unique roles for an actuary, or I, I don't know if I would say fortunate. I've kind of pursued them. Uh, you know, I, I took one year to go work in the field in our Tampa, Florida office. And when I, when I say the field, I mean working with our sales force and our uh, marketing team and, uh, you know, not the home office uh, type of jobs that most actuaries or, or just about all actuaries are located in, you know, a, a few of our uh, our largest offices. Uh, I was in a small office where I was sitting, you know, next to the head of sales on one side and, uh, and you know, our, our head of finance uh, on the other. And I was just kind of embedded in what felt like a small business. 
and I learned some skills that are very non-traditional for an actuary and did that for a year mm-hmm. and then I moved back to Connecticut. And uh, then I also took on a role to, to move to London and work for our international department for a couple of years, which was uh, really? also a really cool opportunity. Yeah, it was it was challenging. It was sort of in a period of time when the EU, the European Union, was still figuring out what all of their laws were going to be as a, a combined group of nations in Europe. And that also includes insurance regulation and figuring out, okay, how are we going to regulate insurance that crosses all sorts of co- uh, country borders. And as a result, uh, you know, Travelers has a smaller office in London, and they were just short-staffed. And at some point they said, who wants to go move to London and, and help out for a bit? And I was the only person to raise my hand, and I was on the next plane to London, uh, which was a pretty cool opportunity. And, um, and you know, that was really good while it lasted for a number of years. And now I'm back back here in Connecticut. Would you say that's the most challenging role you've had? Uh, Yeah, I would say so. You know, it was a combination of being a totally new job for me within the actuarial field. Uh, It was actually sort of new to everyone. It it was um, this capital modeling concept that is pretty new to the world. But at the same time, I was also moving to a new country that has a new culture. And even though they speak English, you know, there's all sorts of language and cultural barriers, and I was an outsider. So it was sort of like taking a new job with a new company, um, even though I was actually staying with the same company. So it was pretty challenging for all sorts of reasons. You know, you've got a time change and everything else. Um, but it was also a very rewarding position to have for a while. Would you Would you say that the European laws are similar to the ones here in the U.S., or are they, um, like, would you you say that the U.S. is um, further along, or, like, probably a term I'll use, maybe a trailblazer in a certain extent, or would you say they're lag behind where they are? I I would say they're similar in a lot of ways, but as with anything regarding the law, the devil is in the details. So all of those little details or the things that seem like minutiae end up mattering a lot. And I would say that that Europe is is ahead of the game in terms of uh, insurance laws and insurance regulation. Um, A lot of the concepts that started in Europe are coming to the U.S. over a period of time. Um, Something that's kind of different is that the U.S. focuses on rate regulation, which means they uh, were really concerned with how much people have to pay for for insurance, and that's heavily regulated. So, you know, whatever you pay for your homeowner's insurance or your auto insurance is, is regulated by each of the states in the United States. And in Europe, it's much more focusing on making sure that the insurance companies are going to remain solvent, that they can actually pay their bills. And so it's sort of a different focus um, as a regulator. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, it's, I, I see the importance of both. I would, I would see the European version as kind of first, if you will, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yes. Yeah. You're not solvent, then 
anything you sell is going to be at risk, right? And, so. and that's really what, what insurance companies are selling. The product is really a promise to pay uh, pay claims when they're due. And if you can't actually yeah. pay your claims, that's a, a pretty big problem. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I can I can witness that when Hurricane Irma came storming through my neighborhood two years ago, and um, we are still waiting to get paid for damage that was done to our house. Um, wow! Yeah, that's no joke. Oh, so, um, the company's solvent, but um, you know, playing games and. As a consumer, obviously, don't appreciate that, you know, where you dig in your own pocket for uh, a lot of money to put your house back together, if you will. So uh, I think I shared that story with you at one point. Right. Tornado touchdown. The hurricane and the hurricane caused a tornado touchdown that ripped our pool cage apart and um, took out some of the French doors in the back of the house and things like that. So, yeah. So um, that was the first thing I wanted to know when we were buying homeowners is I'm not interested in the rates. I'm interested in who's the one that's solvent that's going to be able to pay the claim. So uh, fortunately, they're on the way to paying the claim. <laughs> so Excellent. Um, so Better late than never. You, that, that's true. That's true, right? So if you could identify one or two keys to your success in an, as an executive, what would you say they would be? Yeah, good question. Uh, I would say uh, communication. Um, you know, in this line of work, being able to translate the technical aspects of my job to oftentimes a non-technical audience is uh, is just really important. And, you know, there's a need for actuaries and data scientists who are really strong technically and can do their job. Um, but in my career, one thing that I think has helped me is uh, is an ability to communicate effectively with people who aren't actuaries. You know, there's just all of the other roles in an insurance company, underwriting, claim, sales. And I think I've been successful at dumbing it down, which I'm not sure if that means uh, that I'm smart or that I'm dumb, but uh, I, I think communication has been... Uh, uh, critical, and you know, I think it's critical in, in just about every field. Absolutely. And um, you know, uh, another key I think is persistence, and, and sort of not giving up within the corporate culture. Um, you know, to become an actuary, there's a series of exams that I had to take, and they're very challenging. It took a number of years, and I would say it's the hardest schooling that I've I've ever had to go through. You know, compared to high school or college. Um, you know, people who, who attempt to become actuaries are generally going to be good at math and probably good at taking tests their whole lives. Um, but these exams were the real deal. And, you know, I think going through that whole process uh, prepared me for after I, I got my fellowship as an actuary. And, you know, a lot of things in business don't go right for you the first time. You may, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you may have a great idea and the first time you bring it up, it just gets no support. And, you know, working for a large company like I do, it can be like turning the Titanic. Uh, you know, just progress is really slow. <laughs> you, you, even if you have the best idea, I think being persistent and, you know, appealing to what motivates others and all the behavioral aspects of corporate culture uh, have been important. You know, not pushing too hard, but, you know, kind of picking your, 
moments and uh, waiting for the right time. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And you're, most people have no idea what an actuary is in the first place. Um, That's a good I, point. I, I would imagine when you were in high school and your guidance counselors um, recommended that as a potential opportunity, um, that you might not have even known what it was at the time. That's one thing I found uh, is most most people think insurance is kind of made up in a vacuum. And when I explain what you folks do, uh, they're, they're actually uh, inquisitive because they never heard of it. Or if they've heard of it, they, they think you guys do something different, you guys and, and the women in the field. So now do you work yeah. – um, have you been working with um, – I, I know you work with teams, right? Um, yep. You have a unique approach that you found that works well for you when working with a team or, and or with clients? Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. For me, I think it's about being inclusive um, on whatever the, the project is that we're working on. And, uh, you know, especially if you're working with cross-functional groups or just people who bring different skills to the table, um, you know, I, I think including people in the process and in the decision-making uh, is something that I found successful as opposed to just sort of ruling with an iron fist and um, kind of, make, you know, making decisions in a vacuum. Uh, you know, I'll even just mention that as an actuary, that means I use math to analyze risk uh, for the insurance company that I work for. And when when that career was presented to me as an option, it sounded honestly just pretty lame. You know, I think insurance companies have a bad reputation and and they just need a public relations expert big time. Because, um, you know, typically if you're, if you're calling your insurance company, it's because something's gone wrong in your life and there's not a lot of positive ways that uh, insurance oftentimes interacts with the people. But what I've actually found in, in my role is that you know, there's a lot of good people that work at my company with a lot of different skills and, um, you know, working together on, uh, you know, as a team is something that I think is, has worked really well for us. And so that's something that I try to bring to, to all the jobs and, and the projects that I work on. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I, I would agree with you on the, um, the reputation that the industry has and, uh, Unfortunately, um, the public doesn't have a clear understanding of the products and services that the companies actually uh, provide altogether. Um, what do you believe makes some executives successful while others struggle then? Yeah, uh, you know, again, I, th I think communication is is key, or I'll say it a different way this time, uh, relationship management, um, because as digital as the world, you know, is becoming with everyone buried in their iPhones, I do think that making connections with people is still critical. And um, a lot of actuaries chose this field because they like math and maybe they like working independently. They probably didn't envision a career where they'd have to be writing papers or giving presentations when they picked this field. Um, but, I, you know, I do think what separates the successful executives who make it to that next level uh, from those who don't is about communi communication. Um, 
you know, most actuaries are going to be skilled at the technical aspects of their job, but you know, being able to relate to the non-actuaries, I think, is, is what makes for success. Uh, and I also think creativity is a big thing. Um, you know, we all take the same exams to become credentialed, but in the real world, the business problems take on all sorts of different shapes. And, uh, you know, the, whole, the world is changing, and finding new approaches to all of these emerging issues is, is what I think we need from our actuaries. Uh, you know, especially as technology advances and computers become faster and smarter, it's less about who's quickest with the math or technically strong, but who has creative instincts that they can apply to those business problems. Interesting. Now, have you managed teams of people in your career so far? Uh, I, I manage a, a small team right now, and, um, you know, a lot of the management opportunities within my career have been in the form of project management where, you know, we, um, we're working on something that's cross-functional and there's sort of people from all sorts of different teams collaborating on a particular project. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. What would you say is, on those projects, what would you say is um, the project that had the most people involved from various teams? Oh, that's a a great question. Um, I worked on a project that was in the spirit of developing a new product for uh, for my company to to sell, and it was we really trying to identify a insurance product that millennials would want to buy. And that's been sort of a challenging thing as, uh, you know, a, a trend that millennials have been exhibiting is that they don't really own a lot of things. They they rent uh, an apartment, so they don't really need homeowner's insurance. They often will times will Uber or put off getting a car. And so auto insurance has been kind of on the downswing. Um, and we, had, we attempted to uh, create a travel insurance product. And travel insurance is something yeah. that already exists out there in the world, but it's one of those things that doesn't have a great reputation. Um, people either don't like to think about the need for it because you're planning a fun vacation. You don't want to think about what might go wrong. And insurance companies have that reputation where people are thinking, if I buy this, am I even going to get paid if I have a claim? And so developing a product that, uh, that people might want to buy, uh, was, um, an interesting uh, project that I was on, and as you could might expect, it required oh, yeah. a lot of different cross-functional people from all all different departments in the company. Uh, it was a it was a different approach that we took. It was sort of the way we develop products typically at our insurance company is, you know, you spend like ten years developing a product, and you don't actually find out until the end if someone wants to buy it. And uh, we took this startup approach the way that, you know, all, all the different, you know, Silicon Valley startups would take, which is you get funding for a small period of time and you try to bring a minimum viable product to market. And if it's successful, you get funding for more. And if it's not successful, maybe you cut your losses and uh, decide not to keep throwing good money at a, a bad project. And um, that's actually what we ended up doing. We uh, in the parlance of, uh, of startups, we failed fast, uh, which is sort of a nice way of, of saying we developed a product, we tested it quickly and identified, mm, people don't really want to buy this thing. And so we, uh, we shut it down. 
So I, you know, although that was uh, not the success we had all hoped for when we started out, it was better than uh, probably devoting three years of our lives to rolling out this new product that that didn't go anywhere. So that that was a, an example of uh, just a, a crazy project that uh, started fast and ended pretty fast, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, two things out of that. You said it takes 10 years to develop a product before it I know that that, and, that sounds like a long time, uh, but in some yeah. cases it does. When when you think about all that goes into an insurance product, between the the regulation and uh, and you know just all sorts of things, uh, the the IT, the developing who you know who is the customer you're creating a product for, it can take longer than it should, and we're so yeah. we're working on it. Wow, wow. That's that's incredible. That I did not know. Yeah, it's know. and and you know, ten years may be a slight exaggeration, but not really by much. And when you think about how much the world can change in ten years, the product you roll right. out might quickly become irrelevant. So we're identifying yeah. that uh, even a, a big company that has a lot of red tape, we need to be nim more nimble and uh, need to be more responsive. So it's uh it's been a learning experience. Would you say that's probably one of the biggest challenges the big companies have? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I would say um, it's it's a real challenge, and we're all trying to avoid that uh, that Kodak moment, which you know is when you think about the companies like Blockbuster uh, that, because of technological advances, become pretty irrelevant in a pretty short period of time. Uh, we want to just make sure that doesn't happen to us, and that that requires yeah. questioning everything that we hold to be true, and um, and making changes that maybe people don't want to do because in the short term it's going to be painful. But um, recognizing that the world is changing, and we need to uh, be able to adapt if we're going to survive. It's interesting. So, what what do you see as the big challenges facing your industry currently? Yeah, great question. What might those impacts yeah, be? There's a lot, I think. And I mean, I think it's all in the broad category of change, um, you know, changes that are going to result in disrupting both the way of life and the way of doing business that we're accustomed to. So the big ones uh, that I see coming our way, uh, climate change, I think is a big risk to insurance companies um, and, you know, being able to identify what that is and how much and how fast. Uh, you know, so much of the population lives in parts of the world that I think will be affected and not in a good way. Um, you know, stronger hurricanes and drought, wildfires that we've seen in, in California uh, and, and certainly Florida with respect to hurricanes. And it's just a, a bit unpredictable times that we're living in, which makes the job challenging. Um, I think they're all just all the changes coming from technology. They're going to bring, you know, new cyber risks. You know, the interconnectedness of the global economy has a lot of positives. Uh, you know, you can just order something on Amazon and it shows up on your doorstep the next day, and that stuff's pretty cool. But it also um, creates a lot of risks. Um, you know, things like artificial intelligence and robotics and autonomous cars are going to mean. Uh, big changes for the world, but also for insurance. When you think of, you know, the changes 
in, that automation are going to bring to the workforce, what does that mean for workers' compensation insurance or autonomous vehicles, how that's going to change auto insurance? You know, who's, who's driving the car? Who's liable when it's, uh, you know, a robot responsible for making decisions? And hopefully I've got a long career ahead of me, maybe, maybe 30 years. Uh, you know, I think insurance in the world is going to look a lot different by the time I'm retiring. So, Keeping up with the pace of change is going to be uh, the hard part. Do you see – so it's interesting what you mentioned with the technology because I've heard that, and I've talked with some of your colleagues, particularly about uh, cars. Cars, for me, tend to be toys, and it was interesting when I was um, at my daughter's um, – my wife and I were walking over to um, – the building where uh, she was with her class where she was going to get her award. And my car was on the other side of the campus. And I said, you know, if we had self-driving cars, it would be helpful for me to say, okay, park, park right here, you know? And yet um, I know that uh, that's, that's a big challenge is figuring out, well, who's responsible in an accident, right? And I mean that that's surface stuff, um, and then there's so many other things that go into that. Um, do you do you see that? Like, is that like a real, from your perspective, is that a a huge challenge to the industry on how you're going to deal with these cars that drive themselves eventually? If, if yeah, we get there? it's definitely a. A challenge because it'll mean that we need to change. And, you know, I think one likely outcome is that it's going to affect, um, you know, uh, commercial vehicles first. I mean, that's where it makes sense to actually invest in the technology because it'll, uh, it'll mean companies can save money by not employing drivers. And so you could think of long haul truckers or even Uber drivers, uh, getting replaced with autonomous vehicles. But that also mm-hmm. means um, how do people get comfortable that they that they work correctly? Uh, you know, I, I think it's likely it will re- result in lower frequency of accidents um, because I, you know, my personal opinion, the only thing scarier than uh, a robot driving a car is a human driving a car because I mean people are just not not great drivers and prone to errors and you think about. Uh, people distracted driving, uh, people looking at their phones and uh, and making a lot of mistakes. Well, an autonomous vehicle wouldn't make some of those mistakes, but it also could result in catastrophic, uh, you know, things. Think about um, the grid of autonomous cars getting hacked, and what what could that mean if everyone is put at risk at once? And so, from you know the insurance company point of view. One school of thought is we just need to be agile enough to adapt to whatever changes end up coming. Uh, or on the other hand, should we be involved in kind of creating the future and advocating for a system that we think is, is the right way to go? Uh, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what it's going to look like. Um, I, I, one thing I can say with certainty is that it'll be different than what anyone is probably predicting right now. I just think it'll take on, uh, you know, a shape of its own, but it's going to mm-hmm. change dramatically in some way. And so we got to see how that plays out. 
Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting. I've actually been working with actuaries in the PNC side for nearly 33 years now. So I've got a long history with you guys and gals. And they've generally always been with big, big companies. But in the past two years, I've had three clients who actually went to work with startups, uh, which I hadn't really seen in the past. Do you see that as a trend at this point? I do. Uh, there's been a lot of startups in the insurance space, and um, I think they, they're creating a lot of um, interesting jobs, interesting products and technologies. I think a lot of them will end up being acquired by some of the bigger insurance companies um, because I think to be successful in this space, you do kind of require scale. But um, there's a lot of people doing interesting things, um, you know, tech companies that people who don't even have insurance backgrounds are coming up with some pretty innovative ideas that have pretty uh, pretty clear implications to insurance. And so if we can tap into some of that talent that uh, that's coming from outside of insurance or that's coming from startups, I think that's going to be great for, for everyone. Uh, I'm not sure who's going to be the winners and the losers in the space. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think there will probably continue to be uh, – you know, mergers and acquisitions and, and some of the companies at the top will will combine and there'll be fewer big companies, but at the same time, there'll be people with good ideas and new entrants into the market, and uh, it'll continue to be a, a dynamic space. So in, your, so in your opinion, for what Andrew likes, what, what would you say is one of those unique products or services that are being developed that has caught your attention? Oh, good question. Um, there is one company uh, that is uh, really their tech company, but their product is to identify using some geospatial technology, what are the um, homes and buildings that are prone to wildfire risk? And they use satellite imagery and they look down and they say, this house has a dead tree in its yard and this house has brush that's right up against the house and that's good at spreading wildfires and you can use that tool to um, to underwrite to either you know prevent wildfires or to try to ensure houses that are low risk for wildfire and you know wildfire isn't something that was really on our radar a couple of years ago and then all of a sudden you've got two really bad years uh, worse than any years that we've had in the history uh, out in California just uh, in 2017 and 2018. So all of a sudden, there's some pretty cool technology to help solve some of our problems. Um, I haven't – another bit of technology that I haven't used yet is the autonomous vehicle. I'm on board now that I'm living out in the suburbs, you know, about 40 minutes from where I work. Uh, which is a big step up from my five-minute walk to work that I used to have in my bachelor days. Uh, the sooner the autonomous vehicle can, can get to my garage, the better. Um, that's one person's opinion, but, uh, but I'm, I'm fully on board. Uh, that makes sense. My, living down here in Florida, where you see a lot of older folks driving um, because they don't have family nearby, uh, and so they need a, they need a vehicle. Uh, 
I know for me, I like driving. It's fun. But uh, it was something initially that I kind of looked at and said, eh, I don't know if that'll ever catch on. But just looking around me down here in Florida, I, I think it would be a phenomenal idea because I can see a lot of people really using something like that, uh, particularly uh, those who need a vehicle to get around, don't want to rely on public transportation uh, and whatnot. Uh, and again, it goes back to, so how do you actually insure those vehicles? Who's at, who's at risk? Who's at, I mean, who's carrying all that? So you mentioned, um, obviously you're not in your, bachelor days anymore um i know you and monica are a pretty active couple would you agree with me on that one <laughs> i would i would have to agree with you there and i know you guys love to travel you love to go to some pretty exotic places um for me i found personally that balancing one's personal and business life can be very difficult as you become more successful uh, particularly if you're responsible for a lot of people or projects at the office. Uh, as your opportunities at Travelers continue to expand, do you find it challenging yourself? You may be going through this already to balance work and play. And if so, any pointers on what a young executive might try to accomplish that's worked well for you and Monica? Yeah, it's a great question. I feel very fortunate that um, that I've been able to continue with my active lifestyle, and I really attribute that to just the advances in technology. You know, I've got my my emails on my my personal cell phone, and uh, my uh, my laptop is compact, and I can take it traveling with me. And um, so, you know, I've been able to continue to to travel to my heart's desire because you know my management and the people that rely on me. Uh, can trust that I'm going to be, uh, you know, that they'll be able to reach me. And um, it just works so seamlessly these days that you can connect to Wi-Fi and be responsive and then go back to the beach or whatever you, uh, whatever you were doing before that. So I'm actually taking the next couple of days off, and uh, I feel confident that the place isn't going to fall apart without me, and I'll, I'll be on uh, email or on a short phone call away if anyone needs me. So it it actually uh, works pretty well, and you know I'm fortunate that I work for a company that um, the culture tends to just be supportive of people getting their time off, which is owed to them. And you know you, you, you can't abuse it, but um, it's uh, it's a good place to work if you want to have that work life balance. Yeah. So where are you off to now? I'm off to Austin, Austin. Texas tomorrow. Oh, good for you. It's a fun place yeah, to be. Fun place. Indeed. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you've been an actuary for how many years now? So I've been uh, I've been working for going on 14 years, and I've been credentialed as an actuary, let's say, for probably about six years now. So that means it took a bunch of years to get through taking all those exams. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's many of them. So for you, what has kept sure. the business and the career interesting? Uh, for me, it's it's been the the pace of change. Um, you know, like I've said, I've, I've moved around to a bunch of different roles, but even within a single role, uh, you know, the, the work doesn't stay the same from one year to the next. There's interesting projects that come my way, and it keeps things challenging. I've been able to learn a lot about a, a whole bunch of different things. 
and I, I think that if it stopped being fun, I would go try something else. But, uh, but it's, it's been interesting. Um, so really no complaints about that. And, um, I, I aim to keep it going. As long as the, uh, changes are, um, to your mm-hmm. liking, that'll keep you interested and motivated over the next 20, 20 plus years or so. And about I right. I think I'll have good. Good job security. As long as uh, the robots don't come and take my job, I think there'll be plenty to work on just with all the things going on in the world. Yeah. I still I still believe, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, I still believe you still need a human, human ingenuity behind everything um, to uh, make those decisions as well. Would you agree? I, I think so too, yeah. And I, you know, that last comment about a robot taking my job is very tongue in cheek. I'm, I'm actually sort of an optimist about, uh, about the future with respect to, uh, to robotics and, you know, I think legitimate fears that some people will be displaced and jobs will be eliminated. But, um, you know, similar to the invention of the car or electricity or whatever before that, the world changed and it actually created a lot of new opportunities and new jobs that didn't exist mm-hmm. before. So I hope I can right. continue to be an actuary, but uh, even if my job changes and, and what the, uh, the job function is uh, evolves over a period of time, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about the job security. That's great. That's great. So the last question is, what would you say is your number one piece of advice for new executives? Uh, and why? Yeah, I would say take chances. And by that, I don't mean to just be stupid, but I mean to take calculated risks. Um, I think that some of the best opportunities uh, that I've had have come in the form of things that are challenging and are outside of my comfort zone, Um, even sometimes lateral moves. You know, I've taken roles that are outside of actuarial or non-traditional for an actuary, and usually the result is, you know, you learn something new, you make connections, and as a result, you know, I come back uh, more well-rounded and more valuable to whatever the next job uh, that I take. And, um, you know, typically worst-case scenario, you try something new, and if it doesn't work out, you go back to what you were doing before that. Um, but, I, but I think as a result of trying the new things and the, the different challenging roles, uh has resulted in me being considered for positions that I wouldn't have uh, without taking the chances. So, you know, in general, when you're making a decision whether to take a risk or not, at the time it usually feels like a life or death decision. But in hindsight, I look back and realize there there wasn't a lot to lose and there was a lot to be gained. Um, So, you know, taking those chances or those opportunities when they come uh, is my best advice. I, I like that. I like that. And in the years that we've been working together, uh, you, you've struck me as that big picture thinker that kind of takes all that in, if you will. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Andrew, I, I want to thank you for your very generous time this afternoon. Obviously, you could have been doing something else, uh, but sharing your successes and insight. Uh, into a profession, as I mentioned earlier, that in my opinion remains largely anonymous <laughs> with the public's understanding. And mm. as you know, I'm always uh, I'm always looking to get connected with smart people like yourself in the industry who might be interested in appearing on uh, 
my successful executive podcasts. And uh, I always welcome introductions by email uh, to anyone in your own network who might be a fit for an interview. So I, I want to thank you again, Andrew, for your time. Thank you. The Successful Executive Podcast is hosted by John Bellino. John helps successful executives create a plan for lifetime income by addressing the five key areas that impact your wealth and retirement. To discover what these five key areas are and how to create a plan for each one, visit johnjbellino.com slash webinar for a complimentary video presentation. Material discussed is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian. New York, New York. Copyright 2005 to 2019, Guardian. John Bellino is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ 14021 Metropolis Avenue, Fort Myers, Florida, 33912, 239-561-2900. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Alliance Financial Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Alliance Financial Group, and opinions stated are their own.